would it make sense to be like um you might not be happy with objective happiness um I mean, I think that there's an equivocation in that question, which I love. It's a good question, right? Um, you might not, not be subjectively happy, probably, with uh, the way things are happy, you know? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is a very, very special episode. I have with me once again, Dr. Paul Gould. Uh, this guy's the man. He's he's my mentor, um, friend. I can finally call him Paul without feeling weird. Uh, this guy is, is responsible for why I'm studying philosophy right now. I thought that I could just, you know, uh, have philosophy under my belt uh, in studying theology. And he's like, eh, maybe you should study some philosophy as well. So uh, you guys have all benefited from him, uh, maybe even unbeknownst to you already. So uh, let's do it again. Let's run it back. This is maybe his fourth or fifth time on the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about his new book, A Good and True Story, <clears throat> 11 Clues to Understanding Our Universe and Your Place in It. This is actually the book that he was working on when I first met him at TED's. So I'm, I mean, it's like really, it's near and dear to me. So without this book, I might not know Paul. Um, before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen on Patreon. If you guys like this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron so the lights here can stay on. Uh, that would be huge. You can also support this podcast by leaving me a super thanks on YouTube. You should see that somewhere down here. Uh, you can leave any amount. Any amount would be awesome. That'd be super helpful. Um, and also you can, uh, leave us a five-star review on Apple podcast. That's huge. So let's jump in. And as we're going, if you guys have thoughts, drop them in the comments, I will see those and I will respond to them. So let's do it. Here we go with Dr. Paul Gould. Paul, man, thanks for coming uh, back on the podcast. Hey, Parker, it's great to be here. And I just want to point out my Parker swag here. So there you go. <laughs> so good. Uh, man, for, for those watching, uh, you can buy those uh, in my merch store. So everything is a commodification. I have to make some money somehow. <clears throat> uh, Paul, man, so this book is huge, dude. It's finally here. I can't believe it. Like you've been working on this forever. I, it's actually here. It's in my hands. I love it. Uh, how does it feel to finally be done with it? Yeah, I mean, it feels good. You know, the funny thing about books is that you write the book and you pour your life into it and then you send it off to the publisher and then you forget about it for like a year. <laughs> and mm. so um, it feels great to have like the hard copy. And what's funny, though, is in starting to do podcast interviews and radio interviews about the book, I'm finding that I need to reread read the book to remember exactly yeah. what I said. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, always nervous, wondering how it'll be received by the audience, but uh, rereading it this week. Um, just really grateful for how it, it kind of flows and puts together. And, and this book is, you know, partly a travelogue and partly autobiographical and, and, yeah. and doing a whole bunch of things. So it is really fun to, to uh, see the actual physical copy. That's, you know, the favorite part about the yeah. process of writing the book. Yeah. Well, so it would be really easy to forget stuff from this book because it's so like uh, broad. It's so like wide and encompassing. It's like a whole worldview. Uh, and you go into a bunch of different stuff. Can you help us with that? Like what, for those who aren't familiar with the book, like what, what is this book? Uh, and, you know, what are some of the driving assumptions behind it? Yeah, so um, I do. So 
you know, I'm a philosopher, as you know, Parker, uh, mainly, um, but I consider this a, a kind of public facing philosophy, a work in public facing philosophy, right? It's a kind of public philosophy. And I love like just in terms of thinking about how to position this book, I love there's this essay at, at over at Daily News that did a series on um, public philosophy a little while back, maybe a year ago. And Barry Lamb, who I think you've had on your program, he does, yep. you know, Hi-Fi Nation and, and just some great public philosophy podcasting and other things. He makes a distinction between um, sort of peer-facing philosophy and public-facing philosophy. And, you know, peer-facing philosophy is the kind of uh, philosophy that prizes rigor, sometimes at the expense of clarity and accessibility, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. um, as he puts it, you know, so often in, in peer-facing philosophy, you're just trying to like survive the reader or the listener, right? And, and the goal is epistemic justification. Of course, we all do that as professional philosophers. We, we do a fair bit of peer-facing philosophy. But public-facing philosophy is a bit different where um, the goal isn't necessarily to survive the reader or the listener, but there's other values, right? And so, of course, um, I would want to say, say I still care about epistemic justification and rigor, but there's other values that you bring into the plate, um, clarity and accessibility and even things like awakening, uh, like entertaining or, or, or um, helping awake, awaken, you know, wonder to, yeah. to the reader. And so this is a work in that other category, this sort of public facing philosophy posture where um, there's a couple epistemic goals, not just, you know, taking the reader on this journey of discovery, but doing it, doing it in such a way that, that, that it kind of respects people as humans that are on a quest. And so, yeah, so that's one idea is, is what kind of work is this, right? And I think that um, as a public facing work, of course, we want to sort of argue for the view of the world that we think is true. So I am, I am doing that. Um, but there are a couple assumptions that I bring to kind of how I posture this work. And one of them is a thesis or an assumption about reality. And that's the idea, um, you know, that reality is structured as a kind of story. And so I'm actually tapping into this classic Christian uh, rhythm or story of understanding reality in terms of exodus and redditus or wander and return from God. And it's the idea that the story of reality is one of God and then everything comes from God, right? And um, and then we receive them as humans, as creatures, and then one day we everything will return back to God. And so, so there's this familiar pattern and how that kind of works out this story of reality. Um, you know, it's taking the readers on this quest that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So we consider the questions of origin, and we'll talk about those today, I'm sure. But we also consider like the contours of the human heart and, and this quest, as well as the question of destiny, like where are we headed and things mm -hmm. like that. So that's one sort of assumption about reality that drives the structure of the actual book is a thesis that reality is a kind of story. And in this case, I'm actually thinking of the Exodus Redditus framework that is a traditional Christian way of understanding reality. But then I have a second thesis about human persons that's related to the first, and that's just the idea that we're all on a quest, right, to discover our true name. Maybe that's one way of thinking about this thesis about human persons, that we're on a quest to understand our place in the story, maybe it's another way to think about it, or to just discern and discover our identity. And there's a lot of interest today in culture about, you know, discovering our authentic self or our true self. And I think that there's something good and right about that. And so I want to tap into that. And so that's one thing that drives this idea of quest. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by Philosophy Book Club, a Discord channel. Philosophy Book Club is a group of avid philosophy readers who organize weekly in-depth readings of philosophical literature. There is no prior knowledge required and meetings last about 90 minutes each. 
there's a couple current groups that you could join right now, including Plato's Timaeus, Stoicism, Metaphysics, Ethics, and History of Ideas. They also get together and discuss movies, literature, art, and the organizers have PhDs in philosophy. The participants include university students, lecturers, uh, just thinkers, uh, philosophy enthusiasts all around. So if you guys like philosophy and you want to talk to other people who like philosophy, definitely check out Philosophy Book Club on Discord. It is entirely free to participate, and you can join in the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. Check it out, Philosophy Book Club on Discord. Now let's get back to the conversation. And how I sort of structured the book. And the, the last sort of assumption that drives this um, is a thesis about evidence for God and evidence for the true story of the world. And I'm, I, I'm mindful of actually Stephen uh, Evans, who in his book, um, uh, Theistic Natural Signs and the Knowledge of God, wonderful book that he published uh, a number of years ago, where he talks about how the evidence for God is widely available and easily resistible, right? And the idea is that there's evidence everywhere, um, but, we, but that we can misinterpret it. And so that's, that, that is kind of in the background of this as well, is I want to take them to, um, you know, Evans talks about theistic natural signs. Um, I think that there's a whole bunch of theistic natural signs that point to something beyond this world. And so I wanted to take the reader to 11 uh, that I find particularly interesting and see what we can discover about the world together. So that's kind of what's behind the structure of this, um, as well as wanting to be sort of whimsical and, and uh, you know, combining ideas with image and, and, and uh, you know, anecdotes and stories and literature and culture and all that stuff as well. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the backdrop. That's huge, man. That's so good. Um, <clears throat> the, the table of contents I want to read for the folks so they can see uh, what kind of work this is. Uh, there are 11 chapters, like Paul said, there, uh, the first one's on the, the universe. And then we have life species, humans, morality, meaning, happiness, pain, love, beauty, religion. So it's pretty like all encompassing here, Paul, is this, um, are these just 11 things that you found uh, that you found interesting that you thought these these are good uh, uh, case studies for looking at the religious and the non-religious worldview if we ca if we carve up the world that way? Or are these like um, necessary, like uh, ultimate questions for a worldview? Did, did, did you have that in mind or are these just like, oh, I like these 11? It's a little bit of both. I mean, uh, both. Okay. I, I do like these 11, but I do think there's a structure to it. And it's part of this Exodus Redditus structure that, that I alluded to before. So I do begin with the origin debates, right? Because of this question, um, where did all this stuff come from, right? So I look at the sort of four crucial origin debates, the origin of the universe, life, species, and humans, um, because they're intrinsically interesting. And also because I think that there's... Um, there's certain features of the origin of those four things that cry out for explanation and, and aid us on our discovery. From there, though, I pivot um, to the quest, I think, uh, the, the question of destiny, right? So I pivot from origin to the question of destiny and ask uh, this question, is there meaningful happiness mm. uh, that is available to humans? Right. And so to do that, um, the three chapters right after the origin debate are on morality, I'm wondering if there's, you know, a, a moral landscape at all. And then there's a question of meaning. <clears throat> so I look at that and then I connect it to this question of happiness. So really there we're discovering um, the, <clears throat> the idea of the contours of the human heart and the fact yeah. that you know, we have these longings of the human heart. And is there a story that sinks, <clears throat> that fits with them such that we can understand our destiny? So we have origin and destiny. 
And then from there, the reason why pain and suffering and evil are so important is like, you know, I've been building this case and I use the, the metaphor of cairns, right? These, these stacks of stones that are stacked as you hike to a mountain summit and they kind of guide us on the journey to the summit. And I'm using this as a metaphor for the clues, right? They're stacking one after the other. Yeah. And by the time we get through the, these questions of um, origin and then destiny, there's this con contingent of people that that are basically appear saying, wait a minute, you're headed the wrong way. And it's it's all the voices about what about pain and suffering and evil. And so I think that it's really important that as we journey on this quest, we take seriously Hume and Voltaire and, uh, and I interact with Draper or someone I studied with yeah. and um, about the question of pain and suffering. And so we do that. And then from there, the last two, um, last three, love, beauty and religion are all um, connected because even in the secular worldview or the non-religious worldview, oftentimes art and beauty are function as a kind of surrogate for this yeah. longing for transcendence, mm -hmm. um, as well as love, which has become a, a kind of you know thing that we're all after um, and becomes a kind of idolatrous pursuit that's super important to all of us. And then of course religion, uh, you know, you need to deal with that question. So there is a kind of logic to it, um, yeah. but it's yeah, focus on that Exodus, Redditus origin, destiny, and quest idea. Dude, so good. And <clears throat> for the listeners, like they know that I'm obsessed with the authorial analogy. So I love thinking of the world as a story and that actually has this narratival plot structure. Um, two, two more things. I, I want to get into some details of the book, but um, one thing that I noticed in the book is that you, um, you, you, you do like turn a phrase and, and you write for this, this popular audience and it's really enjoyable because uh, most like analytic philosophers cut all that good stuff out. You know, you'll get maybe like planning over throwing some jokes and stuff, but I really like that about yours. Um, but you're, you're also trying to prompt in doing so you're trying to prompt the sense of wonder in people, um, especially people who may not be open to the religious worldview or to Christianity in, in particular. And as I was reading that, man, I just had this feeling like, um, a lot of a lot of my Christian friends don't have a sense of wonder because they think that they have all the answers. And you say like, "Hey, you know, um, do you do you think that you have like an immaterial soul, or could you just be your brain?" And you're just asking them like just to think through it, and they go, "Of course, I have a soul." You're like, "Yeah, but isn't that weird that you have a soul? Like, isn't that kind of what does that look like?" Yeah. And they're like, "Dude, shut up!" Like, and so I've I've seen I don't know if you've noticed this yourself or if you've seen this experience this, that like sometimes Christians because they they say that they have all the answers will not will lack a sense of wonder about how crazy this world actually is even though it's made by god have you experienced that yourself paul or is this just me uh projecting no no i yes i i don't think it's just you projecting i think that um we we become familiar maybe in the apologetics community <laughs> or even the philosophy of religion community that are yeah. those who are christians become familiar so much with the evidence and the arguments and the syllogisms involved that we we cease to um, I, we kind of mediate our faith through these things instead of, see, you know, um, seeking those personal encounters with not just God, but the reality God made and understanding all things in relation to God. Yeah. And so, you know, even earlier books where I kind of asked this question, how does the gospel get a fair hearing? I think it's been clear to me for a while now that we can't just merely show the rationality of our faith. We need to do that for sure. Of mm. course, any sort of apologetic worth its salt needs to do that. But I think we need to address the, the deeper longings of the human heart. And, and, and so that's the idea of the good, a, a good and true story, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's not just true, it's good and beautiful besides. And so, <laughs> yeah, part of wanting to be more whimsical and share, um, you know, stuff from my own life and, and from movies and literature is because I do think that, that, um, 
plays a role in in reawakening the sense of wonder at the world, right? This wonder yeah. at being itself, and this wonder at at, at you know that thing and 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 this other thing um, that we sometimes lack. And so I'm hoping that um, in respecting humans as humans, this book would would awaken not just the mind, but the heart. And as it turns out, all those things find their terminus uh, in the Christian story. So that's the good cool news. So good. Um, all right. Well, let's let's dive in. I. Uh... I mean, there's 11 chapters. We can't we can't cover them all, but I yeah. thought we could dive in on three in particular: life, species, and happiness. And man, you do such a good job of of doing the public facing philosophy, where you are interacting with like the academic philosophers, and yet you're doing so in a way that someone who's not an academic philosopher can read it. And um, so, even if we get in super deep here, um, and and the 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 listeners thinking, ah, oh, maybe this is too deep. The, it's, the book's not too deep for you. You can read the book, even if we go in uh, in, in ex excruciating detail here. Uh, I thought we could start with life. And one thing uh, we, we haven't broached yet is, uh, maybe you have, but you have these guides in your book, the ladies. You have Lady, uh, yeah. lady Nature and Lady uh, Philosophy. So Lady Nature is guiding us through nature, uh, including life and species. Um, what, what work is Lady Nature doing for us? And then, uh, then let's jump in on life. Okay. Yeah. So what was so interesting in doing the research for this book, um, I came across a bunch of sort of medieval travelogues. And often in, this, in the medieval literature, they would have these personifications of lady nature and lady philosophy. So, you know, we'll talk about uh, a little later on, lady philosophy shows up. And if you remember like Boethius and the constellation of philosophy, right, uh, there is lady philosophy right there uh, of which Boethius was in dialogue with. And you see the same kind of thing with lady nature in some of these medieval travelogues where they're trying to make sense of the world around them. And so I thought it would be helpful to bring in these guys. So what lady nature represents is like, hey, let's just look at what the empirical world delivers to us mm. and, and see what we can discover about this world through the empirical evidence. And that's kind of what Lady Nature is doing, is bringing to us all this evidence. Like with the universe, there's these features of the universe. With life, you know, uh, this 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 thing called life, which itself is something that, that evokes wonder and awe, right? Mm. With species, the diversity of life, which is amazing, right? Um, we've, we've lost that in the debate over Darwin versus non-Darwinian accounts of you know, the origin of species, we've lost this sense of wonder at the amazing diversity of life. And so that's what Lady Nature, I think her goal is just to point and to help us to see uh, the, these features of the world that really should evoke some deep sense of wonder that sets us on a journey to, to uh, understand the things before us. Yeah, that's so good, man. So, so what is, what is life? Okay, good. Yeah. So, you know, as a philosopher, I think in each of these chapters, we, be, we we try to ask careful questions. And the first question in this chapter is just what is it? And then what kinds of life are there? And then what explains the origin of life? And so began with um, actually my my son's uh, ninth grade biology notebook and, and looked at his notes. And hmm. there were some interesting things there. And then I went to the idiot's guide for, um, you know, the life sciences and asked for their definition of life. And, and pretty much all the kind of resources out there from biology are pretty consistent where they'll kind of identify features, right? Like life is, life is uh, to be alive is to have movement and to have organization and homeostasis and energy and reproduction and growth. And they'll kind of list all these things. And that's pretty standard for um, like your biology textbooks. But what I was realizing as I was looking at the literature, like that might describe what life 
uh, does or what living creatures do, but that doesn't get to the essence of what life is. And so yeah. looking at some of the philosophical liter literature where I think you actually get a more helpful discussion on what life actually is, um, I've been persuaded, and I think most, help, most helpful is uh, David Odenberg, who wrote a book called Real Essentialism, and he defines the activity of life as a kind of imminent causation, right? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And for him, imminent causation uh, is this idea of, um, in fact, I probably should just look it up here uh, or look, give the quote here. Yeah. Um, a kind of causation that originates with the agent and terminates in the agent for the sake of its self-perfection, right? So there's some interesting language there, right? It's this idea that living things are self-maintainers and self-replicators uh, you know, and self-movers. And so there's a kind of intrinsic or inbuilt teleology. And so he defines the essence of living things as those things that engage in imminent causation. And so uh, living creatures or living things are agents of imminent causal activity. Mm. And if that's what a living creature is, well, that's going to reveal something. There's, there's a kind of payoff. Um, it's going to reveal something interesting about creatures, the kinds of things they are that are going to fit into uh, an overarching story about the world that I found super intriguing. Yeah, dude, it's so good. There's there's so much there. I, I really um, you're you're the first one uh who told me about Oderberg, and he's just been coming up all over the place lately. So I I've been like binging his stuff on YouTube, and he's stupid smart. Like so, and it, yeah. the guy's amazing. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to imminent causation on on that definition, I have to ask you about like machines, um, and AI and stuff because my audience is is prone to that. Could could a machine be alive under this uh, understanding of imminent causation? I know we talked about like agency and stuff, um, but I don't know. What do you think? Could could AI be alive? Yeah, I don't think so. I think this would actually give us a clear way to demarcate um, okay. between a, um, a living organism and an AI machine. Yeah. Um, again, if you look at the, if you listen to the definition that he gives, it's causation that originates with the agent. Um, and terminates in the agent for the sake of the agent's self-perfection. And so it's true that any machine, whether it's a computer or an AI or a future Cylon or something, hmm. um, it's true that those machines will exhibit a kind of extrinsic teleology, right? That's been imposed on them from some outside source, yeah. in, in this case, an outside intelligence. But that's, in, that's not imminent causation. That's actually just efficient causal processes um, and a kind of plus a kind of extrinsic teleology. I think what's unique about imminent causation is this idea that it originates within the agent for the sake of the agent's self-perfection. And mm. that's a kind of built-in teleology that any AI creature, at least 
I don't think would ever have. Right. Um, maybe, maybe there could be, and then, then you would have a, you know, a question, but at least my quick, uh, intuition is that that's why it would be rolled out. Okay. Um, is, I also wonder about the, uh, and I don't mean to like put you on the spot too much here, but, uh, I wonder about like the agency question for, uh, like an amoeba, like w- would this make us say that an amoeba is an agent if it, if it has uh, cause we want to say it's, it has imminent causation because we think an amoebas are, are alive. Yeah. Well, I probably gotcha. wouldn't want to call it an agent, right? Yeah. Well, not in the film mind sense uh, of okay. um, yeah. someone that has a first person perspective sure. that's conscious, conscious or something like that. But I think we can use it in a more broad sense. Um, as a center of causal activity that originates within itself. Okay. Maybe, uh, within the, within the, within the organism. I don't think so. In that sense, I think you rule in amoebas, but you still rule out, um, you know, Cylons. Yeah. Unless, unless, unless you can like program them to self, uh, well, I don't know, to, to, uh, fit the conditions of imminent causation, like self, replicate or self heal or something like that. Or maybe, yeah. I don't know that much about machine learning. I need to learn uh, more about that maybe from the machines. Um, so yeah. All right. We can, we can put a pin in that one because I need to learn more. In order yeah. To and and I mean, way. maybe you can build a, maybe you can build a machine, right. That, that somehow looks awfully close to imminent causation. Um, yeah. And then maybe the line becomes blurred, right. There are sure. problem cases. Um, yeah. And then maybe we just have to go back and again, though, I would I would want to say it's still extrinsically the whole thing is still exhibiting only extrinsic teleology, and so I don't know how um, you would be able to get away from that unless these things truly do become in some future state uh, self-replicating and self-maintaining and self-reproducing, you know, in the way that uh, living okay. organisms today are. So maybe in some futuristic world, but yeah. my my hopes are pretty dim. Yeah, I I've got a a good case. So in in the book you uh, mentioned the the book to android stream of electric sheep and that was one of the reasons yeah. that we bonded so well because i i when, when you were yeah. working on this you talked about it, i was like dude that's awesome i'm gonna get a tattoo of that and i now have that mm-hmm. but uh phil k dick gives this uh this in the story called autofac he he talks about a, a factory that's like amazon but it just keeps growing and growing and it keeps getting like outsourced to uh the all the jobs get outmoded to robots and eventually it's just an auto factory it's mm-hmm. there's no person in charge but it keeps replicating itself and it, and it keeps like fixing itself and stuff like that in in that case if if uh, autofac is doing that and spreading to new areas of the world on its own without without um some uh program of the programmer like program that you would go send it to chicago or, or build another autofac somewhere else if it does have that self-replication um would would you think that that would be more in, intrinsic te- teleology? Because it seems the same. Like if if God created us, then maybe we're in the same situation as the robot. Yeah. Maybe we only have extrinsic teleology. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it could be. Well, um, I do think that we have intrinsic teleology. So if somehow AI could get, or, or like even even into in the uh, Philip K. Dick book, um, you know, there's that scene with Rachel or whatever that yeah. um, the main character had sex with Rachel and, and he was lamenting, you know, um, uh, you know, she's biological even, but, you know, thinking, well, but in, you know, a couple of years, she's going to die anyhow, because we haven't figured out cell replacement. Right. So even there, there's a question of, you know, and that's, what's so great about your question and about science fiction, right? They're, they're, they're pressing this question. What does it mean to be human? And in this case, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be alive? I think you're right. Like at, at some point, um, 
can something that is extrinsically designed take on a kind of built-in teleology such that it's a self-runner? Well, maybe. Um, so maybe they can exhibit both, right? I think we are creatures that exhibit both intrinsic yeah. teleology, but also we're extrinsically designed by God. Yeah. Um, so maybe at that point, if in some future science fiction, we are able to design a, a true biological organism or not even a non-carbon based organism that somehow exhibits intrinsic teleology, maybe we need to rethink our definition or, or tweak it. Um, yeah. Or maybe we just need to say that they're alive, right? Uh, right. Maybe that's okay. Um, I'm not sure well, which I, way to go. Yeah, man. I, th I think this is so good because it, it brings up another point that I want to talk about. Um, actually, we can just get into it with what kinds of life there are. Um, yeah. uh, let me just broach this really quick and then, then we'll have to take a couple steps back. But like if you did make a uh, Android that was biological, that was, you know, artificially produced, but then it had all the same genes, and, you know, and, and it acted the way we act. You might not say that that's like an artificial life anymore. You might just say that you have tapped into a natural kind and you just learned how to make it in a different way. And so uh, if you go by like the class or the the popular way of defining life today, then you say, look, it has a different causal history. So it's not the same thing. But if you go for like the Aristotelian take that you broach, you go, look, you just have invented this kind or you just made a, a kind you tapped into this kind or whatever, just through a new process. And so, yeah, I don't know that, that we'd, we'd have to like maybe define, redefine like what it means to be artificial then. Um, I think we can flesh that out more if, if, if I let you just do some talking here. Uh, can you go over like the, the different kinds of life and then maybe the two uh, ways that people categorize life? Yeah, good. And you got me thinking here on, um, I mean, but even bef just real quick, based on what yeah. you just said though, like there is a sense in which, like we as creatures, none of us are self-made, right? We're all right. like in the human case, we image another, but even in the non-human cases, we're still every, everything that we are, have experienced with our finite creatures, things that are made by another. Um, and it could just be that creation is the prerogative of God. Like these are great thought experiments, um, you know, uh, about sci sci cyborgs and art, a strong AI and things like that, where maybe that's just, there's some, you know, limit to the kinds of things that sub creators, creatures like us, finite things can actually create. Like maybe we can make things, uh, but we're not going to ever get this genuine teleology. So I don't know. That's just something I want to think a little bit more about, especially in light of the Christian story. But um, yeah. back to your question about uh, the kinds of life, you know, if you go like to the idiot's guide and the older way of kind of categorizing the kinds of life, at least from the fields of biology would be in terms of these five kingdoms. Those kingdoms would be the monera, which are the, 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 you know, the kind of cell single celled or really small microscopic creatures that have no nucleus. And then you have the protista or, and those are your, uh, you know, microscopic creatures that do have a nucleus. So those are you, your eukaryotes, uh, and then you have fungi, plants, and then animals. And those are the five kingdoms. In 1970, though, in the 1970s, Carl Woolsey, uh, who is a biologist, discovered these creatures that are called the archaea. And these are a kind of um, microscopic creature that can exist in really extreme conditions. And so since at least the 70s, the kind of now dominant way from biology to classify the different kinds of creatures that they are, are in terms of three um, uh three uh, kingdoms, or I'm sorry, three domains, right? You have the archaea, who are these the, these microscopic creatures um, that 
exist in these extreme conditions. And then you have bacteria. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the eukaryota, right? From fun fungi to whales to humans and everything in between are in this third kingdom. And that's kind of the modern way of uh, classifying things today from biology. Yeah. Is it archaea? Are those... Um... Did they find those in like the thermal vents in the ocean? Mm -hmm. Is that okay? That's right. Yeah, these okay. extremely difficult places that you would not expect life to exist for long, but yet we find these kind of odd creatures somehow yeah. thriving. So good. So, so um, that on that model, the um, I think the the way to classify is still like tree of life type stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like mm -hmm. it's it's um, yeah, you just trace it back. There's common common ancestry, common common origin, and you just can map it on this big giant tree of evolution. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the dominant way, and maybe we'll come into this when we talk a little bit about the species stuff, but the dominant way is to classify things historically. So you go all the way down to the bottom and you have your first cell, you know, maybe it's the Exarchia, the, the lowest universal common ancestor, the Luca. And then from there you start to build up, you know, as, as the world eventually wakes up um, and you have more complex cells and, and then you have all your different things, but, but you'll classify them um, at least you'll classify the different species, which we're not quite there yet, uh, but you'll classify them in terms of their origin and where they, they sort of fit on the nodes of the tree of life. Yeah. So then this, this other way, uh, the, the more ancient way, is like uh, the Aristotelian way of uh, essences, yeah. Uh, which some people are just kind of like, man, it's going to drive them insane. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, what 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 is an essence for for the listeners? Well, okay, good. So one thing that was interesting, if you, if we back up, like asking this question, what is life? What is the essence of life? Like, what is yeah. its nature? And the answer, if the answer, if Odenberg is right that it's this, you know, living things are are. Um, centers of um, imminent causal activity, what the, and, and that we have this kind of built-in intrinsic teleology, what that tells us is that we have ends. Teleology mm -hmm. is about end or purpose or, or function, right? So we function in light of this end that we're heading towards. And so that suggests, if we're agents that, that engage in this kind of imminent causal activity, that suggests that we're, there's something unique about the kind of creature we are. And as it turns out, when you come to the metaphysics of material objects, right, there's usually at least two, maybe three different ways to, to understand them. And on the classic view, um, the kind of beings that have this deep unity, the kind of unity that's suggested by this intrinsic teleology are what are called substances. Mm -hmm. So you have ends and ends suggest essences. Essences just pick out what you are, the kind of creature you are. And it's in light of your essence that you flourish or you function towards some end, right? So yeah. if imminent causal activity suggests that we have ends, ends suggest that we have essences, essences suggest that, that some at least objects, namely living organisms, have a kind of deep unity that's that's explained in terms of the essence or nature of the thing in kind, the, the thing in question. So on the older view, we're not just an assembly of um, atoms, right, that just happen to enjoy spatial-temporal relationship with other atoms such that we can constitute a life. No, on this older Aristotelian view, substances exist as deep unities um, that are united in virtue of the fact that they have a nature or an essence that guides their teleology or their, their end states. And that's the kind of ancient view. And as it turns out, um, it's making a kind of uh, comeback today in the academy, in philosophy and, and in philosophy of science, because it does seem like we have 
a number of things that are fundamental holes or deep unities uh, that exhibit this kind of intrinsic teleology. And so I think yeah. in biology, but not just biology, in all, in all the areas where you find concrete material things, we find substances. Um, the other view is that you're just an ordered aggregate, um, like the computer, like the AI. And those things will exhibit extrinsic teleology, but not this intrinsic teleology. Hmm. And so they might have a kind of accidental form uh, imposed upon them, but they're not going to have this intrinsic essence or nature that informs the kind of creature that they are. And so part of what I'm doing in looking at these features with Lady Nature, right, looking at the features of the world is, is paying attention to, okay, what, what, are, what are the essential features of life in this case? And what does that tell us about the kind of being that we that living creatures are? And how does that fit into this overarching story of the world, you know, um, in a way that that is that is plausible and, yeah. and that, that reveals truth about it. And, and what I think I'm doing is, you know, subtly or not so subtly is, is pointing to the certain view of the world, this neo-Aristotelian view of the world that I think is maps on more more truthfully to the way the world is. Um, so yeah, I could say a whole lot more about that, but that's a good start. Yeah, that's that's a really good start. So um, with, with an essence, um, uh, I, I, I should know this by now, but it's, it's always... Uh, gets vague to me um the relationship between an essence and a substance do, do does every substance have an essence as like a constituent part of it it just depends on what kind of uh theory of substance you're going to unpack yeah right? um so in in philosophy even the word substance is a theory of art and there's there's a, a bunch of debate about what a substance actually is. Hmm. I think intuitively, like Aristotle's intuition that there's a kind of independence and there's a kind of deep unity that substances enjoy that that ordered aggregates don't, right? So yeah. tables are not substances, but living organisms are substances. And, and the reason why um, the one is and the one isn't a substance is because substances are, enjoy some kind of independence and some kind of deep unity. And so on my definition of a substance, which is going to be neo-Aristotelian, um, following in Aristotle's sort of broad way of viewing the world, a substance is a fundamental unity of parts and powers and properties that are organized mm -hmm. toward such that the, the entity in question uh, will function properly. And the question then, um, do you have an essence or a nature or are you a nature, kind of splits the difference uh, between different views. Some say, like, um, or, you know, there's versions of hylomorphism that say substances are compounds that are composed of two things, um, a form and matter, you know, mm -hmm. or in the case of the humans, a body and a soul. On my view, I, I kind of give a non-mereological gloss of a substance. I don't want to say that substances have natures. I, I, I would prefer to say that substances are natures and they have okay. properties and powers and things like that. And, so and nature and essence, is, gloss. Yeah. Nature essence is the same thing? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, okay. using those two as syn okay. synonymously. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. That's so you good. are a nature, you are a particularized nature yeah. um, that has essential properties and accidental properties and powers if those are distinct from properties and parts, physical parts and, you know, metaphysical parts. And yeah. all those are metaphysically dependent on the whole, right? So one of the key things of the Aristotelian view is that there's something in the world called whole priority, right? That the whole yeah. is prior, metaphysically prior to its parts, such that the parts I have are, are, you know, dependent on me in some way. And that's one of the key features of Aristotle. And I think that that's right. I think that explains the deep unity in a way that's really attractive. And then when we connect that to the larger cons considerations about the true stories of the world, there's a really um, compelling story 
given theism that makes sense of why were these fundamental holes uh, and, and things like that. Yeah, Paul, so is the move there to um, the, ex does the explanatory power of theism, um, is that like bolstered by the like creative design of essences or, or maybe our essences like uh, essences and natures are like immaterial and so they would have a uh they'd be less surprising on a view of the world where they're it was created by an immaterial god well, what what's the uh yeah what is that final like what's getting us over the yeah. over the hump yeah so i'm actually thinking of it's it's a kind of a way to revive um aristotle's famous fifth way of mm -hmm. his you know aristotle in the summa theologia had these famous five ways five, uh, famous five arguments for god and the fifth way was a kind of teleological argument that began with this empirical premise that there are ends in nature right that you you see um just as you see like an an arrow flying toward its target, you see these creatures that ha that are ordered towards some end, right? Acorns yeah. mature toward oak trees. Human fetuses mature towards adult um, adult members of their their kind, and things like that. And so Aristotle was making this claim that you can't have ends without essences, and these essences um, cry out for some kind of explanation, right? Yeah. Why do we have these natures? And he's going to make this argument in the fifth way. Um, to say that there must be some some source of that in the same way that a painter has the idea of a painting in their mind before they bring it into reality. There must be some mind that has this idea of the different substantial kinds, the different natural kinds that we find in the world, uh, and then brings them into being. And so there's a kind of a teleological argument from um, this idea that there are essences uh, or forms in the world to a mind that must conceive of them. And so it hooks up really nicely to divine exemplarism in Christian in the Christian tradition such that um, all these natural kinds, substantial kinds are created in virtue of these divine exemplars, these ideas in the divine mind. And so I think there's so I kind of give a little quick argument boostering like the Aquinas's fifth way here yeah. in this chapter on life. And that's the kind of interesting discovery, right? That, um, yes, there's all these improbabilities about life coming from non-life, but even setting that aside like we've got these 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 substances with intrinsic teleology. And that's the thing that cries out for explanation. Yeah. And I think there's a good, neat little argument there. Yeah, man. I love that. It's so good. Um, so, so uh, maybe putting a bow on uh, life, I, the, the origin question, how did it begin uh, is really good. I just, it, we get into like such numbers and stuff and that's never, I, I don't know why I'm like this, but I like being abstract and, and thinking about yeah. like art. I don't, that when anytime like numbers get involved, I'm like, okay, cool. That's a huge number. It doesn't do anything. Other people are like, dude, that's insane. Um, yeah. But, but putting a bow on, on the kinds of life thing, um, uh, the, the Aristotelian or Neo Aristotelian way of categorizing life uh it, it goes in for like four substances, um, but but maybe like the the great chain of being is divided into into three categories. Can you help us? Like how 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 would a, a Aristotelian categorize uh, what kinds of things are alive? Good. So there is a there is a classic view in the West. Um, Arthur Lovejay wrote this classic book called um, The Great Chain of Being, actually, where he notes that uh, this idea that reality was structured in terms of a of a a kind of hierarchy has exerted an enormous amount of influence in the West on our way of conceiving the world. And again, I, I think for good reason, right? Like even Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles is asking this question, why did God create? And his answer is that God, 
this, you know, because God didn't need to create, but he wanted to spread his joy and delight, and he wanted to represent his goodness in finite creation. And the only way that he could do that was to create a multitude of finite substances of various levels of scale that would together as a whole reflect the goodness of God, right? So even mm-hmm. in Aquinas, you have this idea of this great chain of being that perfectly reflects and communicates to finite creatures um, God's goodness. So it's exerted this enormous influence uh, on the West. And the basic idea is that you can structure the substantial kinds, the kinds of substances that exist according to a, a hierarchy of being. And usually it goes something like you have God at the top, then you have angels you know, in the incorruptible realm, and then you'll have humans and then you'll have animals, and then you'll have plants, and then you'll have inanimate substances like atoms. I do think those are substances. And then you'll have like non-being. And I will say that this, uh, and I I tend to think of this uh, hierarchy organized in terms of powers, right? So as you go up the chain, you have all the powers of the creatures in the lower chain, and then you have some more ones, right? And what's so interesting, we talked about David Odenberg. He uh, recently, there's a wonderful book that just came out that was edited by Rob Coons and William Simpson, and I think um, uh, James Orr. But uh, in the book, uh, Odenberg has a chapter basically re, uh, you know, arguing about uh, this the plausibility of this ancient idea of the hierarchy of beings, and he does. Um, argue that it's not only plausible, but it does some ex- explanatory power in showing how you know everything sort of fits together. So, yeah, it's still kind of a live idea, and I love yeah. as part of this neo-Aristotelian resurgent. Not only are we, are we talking about individual things, but now people are beginning to think about, wait a minute, they all kind of fit together as a whole, yeah. and they're headed towards somewhere as a whole that that makes a lot of sense. Dude, I, I'm with you, and like I said, I, I've been just binging uh, Oderberg uh, videos. Yeah. And, and and yesterday, I just wanted to broach this for for any like the hardcore theologians listening right now. Um, a, a, a problem that people have with the great chain of being from a theological point of view is they say, well, look, the the early Christians were persecuted for for this kind of idea because they said, you know, there was this pagan idea of the great chain of being where so above. Uh, so so below, and so the emperor was like God on earth, and that's why you worship the emperor, mm-hmm. but Christians said no. And Oderberg was responding to this question and was like, look, w- w- just because there's a bad uh, use of the hierarchy doesn't mean that hi- all hierarchies are bad. And then someone else mentioned the creator-creature distinction and, and saying God's just at the top of the being, um, somehow like, you know, destroys the creator-creature distinction such that he's just a being among amongst beings. And Oderberg, who's a Catholic, would deny that and says, you know, no, uh, there's still that huge, uh, sharp distinction between creator creature. Um, And when you and I have talked about this before, when you first brought this to me, I'm like, dude, what the heck? Um, And so you could say that God is a being amongst beings, even if he's a say, and there's all sorts of ways to cash it out. So you don't get to just go, no, that's anti-Christian. Like it's actually makes really good sense of the Christian worldview on a Christian worldview. Yeah. Yeah. I still don't know what it means to say God is a being, beyond being or, you know, or somehow if you talk about the divine substance as, you know, that somehow makes God a creature. I, I still don't get that. I see that out there, but, um, yeah. you know, the, we don't need to do that as long as we, yeah. obviously he has all the powers, right? What He's yeah. the omni, omnipotent being. No, no creature has that and he's infinite right. in various ways. So yeah, there's ways to maintain the creature creator distinction. In fact, I wouldn't even worry about that being blurred by this. I think that it's easy to maintain. You have God and then you have distinct substances that are created by God. And that's, there's your distinction right there. Yeah. Um, okay. So going up the great chain of being, um, I think it's like you have vegetative, sensory, and rational at the top. 
Is that the way to think of it, or is there, or do we think of it as like humans, animals, plants, inanimate things, like maybe both? What how, how do how do we think about the great chain? Oh yeah, I mean, I think it's. I'm happy to go from the bottom up, right? So, and and think about you know, if you go from the bottom up, you're just adding powers, and that that was okay. like Aristotle's, you know, that you find even in Aristotle's work, right? So you've got inanimate um, substances, like let's just say atoms, carbon yeah. atoms, or something like that, and they have certain powers, right? Like power to repel and and to attract, let's say, or maybe to fuse. Uh, but then you go up the scale to the plants and, you know, Aristotle called them vegetative animals and they have certain powers for, um, oh gosh, uh, you know, nutrition, growth, reproduction, um, things like that. Uh, and then you go up the chain a little bit more, you get to your Aristotle sentient animals, right? Like dogs and, and apes and things like that. And they're going to have all the, the powers of the vegetative things plus some, right? So they're yeah. going to get... Um, powers of sentience and appetition where they can, you know, sense trouble and move and then locomotion. And then you go finally up the scale to rational animals like humans. And we have all the powers of the lower creatures, plus the ability to think and to will yeah. uh, more to moralize and, and things like that, that are, that are unique to us. And so, yeah, it's just, you continue to add powers as you go up the scale. I don't know what that means for angels. You know, Aquinas yeah, has some <laughs> things to say there about yeah. angels having, you know, each, each angel is its own individual species. There's only one of each kind, you know, right. and um, at least on the medieval view, angelic beings cross the bridge from the corruptible realm where we're subject to the four D's of disease, death, decay, and destruction. You know, we cross that realm to the incorruptible realm where angels aren't subject to all that because they don't have a physical body. Yeah. Um, and so they're going to have different powers. I don't know what they are, but um, you know, they'll be there. That's why they're angelic beings. So, yeah. yeah. That's, that's where I, I lost, uh, Oderberg lost me uh, when I was listening last night where he's like, yeah, they, they, um, all their knowledge is given to them directly by God, so they don't really need to use their power. And I was like, "Well, I don't know how we're getting there." But he's so smart that, like, he could have convinced me. I just turned it off. Um, well, let's let's go to uh, to species then, because I think it's like a a, a natural spot to go here. Um, yeah. We we talked. I talked earlier, or I I mentioned uh, the difference between the tree of life understanding of you know categorization versus an Aristotelian one where. I think I think it's fair to say like natural kinds, right? Like these mm -hmm. essences or or kinds. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the twin turkey problem, but I I I uh, I want to call it twin Miss Painter instead because okay. that's your dog. Yeah. Um, can you can you bro, can you lay that out for us for, for the audience? Yeah. And can so you use Miss Painter, by the way. I, I can use Miss Painter. She was okay. sitting right behind me. She I don't know where she went, but um, yeah. Miss Painter's our little dog, little half Chihuahua, half shepherd dog. It's kind of weird dog, but um. Hmm. Yeah. So what, what's going on there is um, so in the, in the um, again, this is a chapter on species and, you know, I tread uh, like I figured it, you know, it's part of reality. We want to understand it. I know that the debate has become super toxic, right. Yeah. In this. And so the series of questions that I want to consider there, well, first of all, what is it, what does it mean to be a species? Like, what is that concept to note? What does it, what does it refer to? And that's where the, the twin Turkey or the twin painter illustration yeah. came out is um as uh, ever since Darwin, you know, we've we've used the species concept as a, to, denote, to denote historical entities, right? Like where they belong on the tree of life. So it's an historical concept. And I was basically just arguing that that's, while you know, the origin or the history of, a, of where an entity came from is helpful. That's not going to, that's not going to pick out its essence. It's not going to be the most illuminating concept of what it means to be a, a, spe a species. And I gave two arguments for why um, we should not follow biology and Darwin in, in um, defining species historically. And I want, mm -hmm. I'm arguing for 
again, Odenberg does this really well, a kind of metaphysical definition of what it means to be a certain species or a member of a substantial kind. Um, and the two reasons that I was arguing is number one, it leads to absurd, absurd consequences uh, if you hold to this historical entities approach. And then number two, wait a minute, essences do a ton of work, you know, that yeah. historical entities don't do. And so on the absurd consequences, the, the idea is this, imagine um, that you had Miss Painter, my dog that was sitting right behind me, uh, and then you have a molecule for molecule um, duplicate of painter, so twin Miss Painter, that exists on some other planet, right? Some other universe uh, or uh, some other place in our universe, you have a twin twin Miss Painter that's a molecule for molecule duplicate. Now that certainly seems possible, but on the historical entities conception of what it means to be a species, we would be forced to say that these are two different kinds of creatures, two different yeah. kinds of species. And that just seems weird, right? It just seems obviously wrong, right? Um, and that's pointing out one of the absurd consequences of merely defining species in terms of their origin and their or their history, right? Just because Miss um, Painter has a certain historical story here on Earth, and then, then maybe there's, again, this is assuming there's a different origin story for how twin Miss Painter arrived there. That just seems like the wrong result. Mm. And that's what's going on with uh, twin Turkey and twin yeah. Miss Painter examples. Yeah. Well, so I love this, man. I think the first time I heard it was probably from you in, uh, in Phil science last semester. And you were talking about like a tiger or something and a, and a different, yeah. and it was like, mm. you, you're at a different, you're on a different planet and you see this tiger and it looks just like a tiger, but you're like, that's not a tiger. And you're like, well, what do you mean? Like, what, why not? Yeah. Cause it's yeah. not the same origin. And it was like, that just shows that it, it seems super silly and not that it's like you said, not that it's not important, but it can't be everything. And mm -hmm. I, I broached this. Um, so I, I do discipleship, uh, as you know, uh, with college athletes, but maybe the audience isn't. And some of my uh, dudes are like biology majors. And I bring this up to them. And they, they hadn't heard that before either. But I was like, doesn't that seem kind of silly? And he's like, yeah, it just seems so implausible that there'd be a duplicate. I'm like, that's because you're thinking like a, a scientist, yeah, science student. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. I don't care if it's implausible or not. I'm a philosopher, man. Right. I'm just saying like right. whether it's possible and if it is possible, then it looks like a counterexample for your method. Right. For your definition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, your definition. Um, yeah. So uh, people might, I mean, we've already talked about it a, a few times, but like why go in for essences? What what work can essences do here? You, you got these three um, things that they can do. Yeah, so in the book, or at least in this part of the book, I'm, I'm arguing for just sort of a, a broader understanding of species than merely historical. And part of the part of the reason why is because I think that if we kind of tap into this more metaphysical understanding of species, and by the way, like Rob Coons will do this in his work on substance, he'll land on something like this as well. Mm. Uh, and part of the reason is because essences do do a lot of explanatory work, right? It's not yeah. that these are posits that we posit for no reason, right? They actually do things. And here's three things that they do well. Number one, they explain the deep unity um, that we see in uh, the world, right? in, in, in living organisms. Let's just focus on living organisms, right? They, the, um, I think this is an empirical claim, right? Living organisms are substances because they, they're a deeper kind of unity than a computer or a heap yeah. of sand, right? There's the empirical claim and what best explains that deep unity, right? I'm thinking of like PVI, we've just been reading a little bit about his, his Material Beings book that he wrote in 1990. And like, you know, PV, Peter Van Inwagen is a great, like Neil Humian, who just argues that you have like two things, right? You have yeah. simples, atom, atomic simples, and then you have like living organisms. And those are the two kinds of material objects. And, and, and you know, in answering the special composition question, um, when do the X's compose the Y? 
Peter Van Inwagen famously says, well, when the X's are, are caught up in a life, right? Yeah. And, and, and he even will talk about, you know, living things are, are self-maintaining things. So notice he's using that kind of language of this intrinsic imminent causal activity. Right. But he doesn't have the conceptual resource to, resources to explain why they're caught up in a life, right? So we can yeah, answer he kind the of punch to the scientist, right? Yeah, he's like, because like, well, you go like, what does it mean to be caught up in a life? And he's like, well, ask the scientist. And you're like, Right. Yeah, come, come out, there. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't give the answer, yeah. but but we want to explain that. And and here's one way to explain it. Well, because the substance is uh, I'm sorry, the essence is doing a lot of work. Yeah. Um recurrence, you know, it, it helps us explain why uh dogs beget dogs. I mean, this is a more simple thing and not pigs, right? You know, yeah. I mean that, that's helpful to know. There's sure. a counterexample, what about your DNA I, and genetics? Doesn't that just explain inheritability and things like that? I think there's a there's more to say there that I can if you want. But then also there's like the third thing that in many ways, this is where I began um, wanting to think about essences is it explains resemblance, right? If you yeah. look at it in the world, um, it seems like um, living organisms are, are a grouped into fairly natural class, you know, groups of classes, right? Classes of things. And we want an explanation for that. And, and um, you know, I think of like David Armstrong and his work on the problem of universals. He says that resemblance facts, you know, um, are Maurian facts. These are the kinds of things that that are just part of the bedrock of reality that we that that we need to give some account, right? Yeah. Um, and and one nice way to explain resemblance is to argue that these things resemble in virtue of a shared, uh, well, an exactly resembling nature, right? Yeah. And so th those are some of the reasons on the philosophical side of the ledger why I I think we can go in for essences. Yeah. Man, that's so good. So, so going back to the to the robot um, example, if a robot um, can have uh, like intrinsic teleology uh, and imminent causation, like and, and that would that would explain like the unity. Um, if they can replicate, then that would be like resemblance, or sorry, that'd be recurrence. And right. then if they can do. What we do, I guess we'd still need to have like a reason to think that they're conscious, but also like whatever, I, I don't have direct awareness that you're conscious. So like you still have to answer the problem of other minds and this one's really tricky. But so what I'm thinking is like, if, if, if it looks like there's unity, uh, recurrence and resemblance, then maybe we haven't created an artificial intelligence. Maybe we've just, uh, re Maybe we've just, you know, brought about intelligence, right? Like maybe that would just be like the natural kind. Yeah. And maybe we made an mm -hmm. image bearer by other means, if if that's what we are. Um, and then like, it wouldn't be like artificial intelligence in the way we think where it's like we made it. From... Do you know what I mean, Paul? Is that, does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, we're back on this question of um, <clears throat> what 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 is the limit of uh, what we can bring about as humans yeah. in these scenarios? Yeah. And would that thing be not just alive, which was the you know the previous question, but maybe would it have an essence? Would it have its own right? Internal that's that's of unity or something like that. Yeah, like you. It seems like you wouldn't if if you're doing that. If you're creating the thing, um, it seems like you're not. Yeah, you're not actually like inventing something. And I think that's what we take our AI to be like. Strong AI is like an invention of humankind, where it's like. Well, no, you didn't. In, it seems like you didn't invent it. If if that thing is alive, maybe you've tapped into like psychophysical laws that produce yeah. uh, that give it a soul or an essence. But right. oh, okay, like yeah, you, that's still fascinating and crazy, right. and maybe, maybe uh, it's immoral. Like, 
Yeah, maybe it's like yeah. you know that we've we've been messing with. We're playing God, right? Like it's the Merlin's right. touch where somehow we tapped yeah. into the forces of, of the universe that we ought right. not to tap into. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. So there's ethical questions. I, I, I tend to think that you know, I know I, I tend to think that these kinds of things are probably metaphysically impossible. Okay. Um, but may, but I don't know. Maybe not. Um, I know, dude. I'm with think, you. You know, but then I'm with then you. I'm, it'd be nice to. I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but that brings up, so I, I just kind of snuck in a question about souls and immaterial minds and you, you, you do get into that, I, I believe, uh, later. Um, but, and so I don't want to touch that too much, but I do want to ask about essences and, uh, whether or not those are like physical things or whether there's not, whether or not a, a nature is a immaterial component of a, of a living organism. Like, uh, do you have any, any like opinion on that? Do, 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 do we, do you need to answer that? What you... Oh, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I, I go back and forth on this. Um, if I start with the human case, um, I yeah. think that I'm led to say that if I'm identical to my soul and my soul has a body and my soul picks out what, who I am, uh, but categorically what I am is a substance that has a nature, um, I'm of two minds. I, I think it's concrete. I think natures are always particularized. So they're concrete things. Um, and so I, I don't want to say they're abstract, although yeah. I do think our abstract properties flow from them, right? So I'm a kind of weird Aristotelian about substances and a Platonist about properties. Okay. Um, so if substances are just particularized natures, that's what we are. <clears throat> it mm -hmm. seems that substances are concrete things. Um, but then again, if I when I come to the human case, I'm not so sure, you know, I, I know um, sometimes we'll, we'll talk about like the soul is the form of the body. Sure. I don't know if I like that language in the case, in the human case. I want to say that what, who I am, my identity is a soul, uh, but what I am is a substance. So categorically I'm a substance, uh, but my, and my personal agency or identity is um, a soul. Um, well, so that's case, that, that, that would be concrete and not abstract. That's cool. I like that. But yeah. um, I'm thinking like immaterial and, and material. I know. I right? know. In the human case, I'm an immaterial thing that has a physical body. Yeah. Um, so what about the non the non human case uh, of an animal or a plant? I guess yeah. uh, I probably am inclined to say that those two are immaterial things that have material bodies. But I I I don't. I'm not saying that um, with complete confidence. Yeah. Um, that's what I want to say. I think. I think I'm. I think I'm with you. It seems like it might be a bullet to bite on on some yeah. like again Christians. Some Christians who haven't thought a whole ton about this maybe will be like, well, you're saying that a, a tree has a spirit and that's paganism. Like, chill right. out, dude. We're not saying that it's alive in the right. same way I am or that it has a you know, self-conscious reflective nature or something. Yeah. But like if my dog has thoughts at all, which I think a lot of people do think that dogs have thoughts mm -hmm. and and you're saying that a dog is full in it. Someone says that a dog is fully a material thing. Then you're, then you think that material things can have thoughts and we lose all the arguments for the yeah. soul, which we think like when you, when you look at the human case, it seems so ridiculous to say that a physical thing could have thoughts and aboutness and intentionality and all that. So like, yeah. you got to be careful with what you say about dogs. If lest you contradict your own arguments for the soul, you know, and I just right. think people aren't, aren't and Aristotle was, about it. 
Yeah. And yeah. Aristotle was very comfortable, you know, there are vegetable, vegetable souls and there are dog souls, right? And right, and I get right. that. I mean, I'm at least okay to say that we have metaphysical parts, right? That souls enjoy whole priority such that, yeah. I'm sorry, not souls, substances enjoy whole priority such that they're prior to the whole, the um, their parts. So if you apply that to the tree, the tree enjoys whole priority such that it is prior to its oak parts, right? And it's yeah. whatever the different chemical atoms that make up a tree. So in that sense, I do think it <clears throat> commits me to something like, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't, and on the other hand, I'm not totally, I don't always think that we should reify form language or nature language, right? I just yeah. want to point and say, there it is. That's the particularized nature of that tree. But yeah. there's a kind of metaphysical priority there. That's something uh, metaphysical I don't want to say part, but there's there's something there that is either immaterial or I don't know. Yeah, I'll keep thinking uh, on it. No, yeah. dude, this is so good. Uh, and again, like folks, uh, this isn't going to be in the book, so don't worry if you're like, oh no, um, it's it's much more winsome than I'm being here. Uh, so, but but Paul, just to be like, man, I against the, I'm with you where I don't want to reify stuff. Um, but I think like if we go in for like like imminent forms or something like. Uh, uh armstrong does then you mm -hmm. get like the you know the blue museum that we talked about where like you take all the yeah. blue things you put them in the blue museum you paint it blue and you explode it and now blue doesn't exist right. i just think that's such a good argument against that kind of stuff where it's like dang it i don't want to say this kind of stuff but i think we're forced mm -hmm. to like but i'm with you like i i don't want to be super like dogmatic about it yeah, yeah. um yeah Right. And, and what's so interesting is I, I can say with confidence about the human case, we are a soul that has a body. But um, I can also say, and I've published and written on this, that I don't, so set aside the human case, um, think of up the tree, I don't reify form, substantial form. I just yeah. think you are a particularized form or particularized nature. But it's like that metaphysical principle that that uh, unites and gives life to the, the living organisms in this case. Um, yeah. And so, so I think there's, uh, and there's lots of literature on this where, um, you know, these things are debated. Um, yeah. But that's, that's currently where yeah. I'm at uh, in the non-human case. I, I don't want to reify a form. I just want to point and say, there it is. Yeah. Michael Lux does this. He's a, he's someone who just thinks substances are particularized natures that have properties. I, I will say that the properties we have are abstract. So they're not imminent universals. Good. Um, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so I think you can get everything you want there without the weird yeah. blue museum, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I say good as if it's like my idea, but it's just what you've already yeah. taught me coming back to say like, oh, good. Yes. Yeah, what you believe. Um, this is so good. Okay. Well, let, let's, uh, let's try and broach happiness a little bit. This huge, huge topic we're going to cover in just a few minutes. Um, so we're, we're, we talked with lady, uh, lady nature already, and now we're going to go into lady philosophy. Um, do you want to like give us just an overview of Boethius real quick? Yeah, so Boethius um, lived in you know 500 AD time period. Was killed in 585 AD. Um, who was it? He was a wealthy Italian aristocrat, and um, late in life he was basically falsely accused by the the king there in Italy uh, and put in jail. And so while he was in jail, he he's a Christian, a, a politician, thinker. While in jail, though, he's he's utterly utterly um, just destroyed you know why am i why why have i lost everything right i've lost yeah. my money my position my power my health i mean he talks about how he's just a bag of bones in this this boethius the constellation of the philosophy and he begins to lose himself and so he begins to um just 
you know, lament why do the do the um, wicked prosper yet the righteous often do not. And in this lament, um, as he's writing this this personification of philosophy, Lady Philosophy appears before him. And so you can read about it in book three of, of the Constellation of Philosophy, where she appears and she begins to like remind him of his true nature. He says, your, your problem isn't that you've lost your wealth and your position and your, and your even your, you know, your relationships. Um, the problem is you forgot who you are and you're, and she's, she wants to restore his reason and put him back on the path of truth. And so she begins to console him through philosophy. And so I found Boethius uh, is a great foil for exploring this question of, of is there meaningful happiness in the world? Yeah. And so, so she makes her appearance, uh, you know, in, in the chapter on morality. And then by the time we get back to the chapter on happiness, there's this great dialogue that Boethius engages with Lady Philosophy about the nature of happiness and where you find it. And so that's kind of yeah. what I'm doing um, is entering in. And really, Lady Philosophy has been with us since the beginning, but she makes her official appearance uh, when we talk about these things. Yeah, it's so good. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you did that, too, um, with Boethius because of his position and because of what he's lost. You can look at like, mm -hmm. well, if you were to gain this back, would you be happy? Would it? Would you really be happy or not if you're getting wealth or success or fame or pleasure? Um, uh, what's really fun, like you again, like the whole time your you, lady philosophy is with us and uh, you're, you're bringing in different philosophical examples and thought experiments. I wanted to just uh, see if we could lay out Nozick's experience machine real quick. So that would be like pleasure. And this is, that's yeah. what it's targeting. It's saying if, if happiness is pleasure, then here's Nozick's experience machine. You can just plug in and boom, does that seem like it's happiness? So yeah. Can you lay that out first and explain why yeah. pleasure isn't at all? Yeah. Yeah. So Robert Nozick famously um, did this thought experiment that often is taught in undergrad philosophy classes or ethics classes where he's, you know, and, and usually the debate, um, the experience machine is brought in, in like an ethics class where you're exploring different um, normative systems of ethics and you're usually considering utilitarianism, you know, at the yeah. time and utilitarianism as at least it's sometimes articulated, like maybe from Jeremy Bentham is like just maximize pleasure, you know, this one good and minimize pain. And, and, and so Nozick comes in as like your counterexample um, where Nozick says, well, wait a minute, what if you could just plug into this machine? And these, this, mm -hmm. this is funny because I think he's writing in the seventies, but today, you know, with virtual reality and <laughs> meta, you know, these things become right. more plausible. Um, what if you could plug into this machine where you could just sort of turn the dial up on pleasure and just experience pleasure in this machine forever, right? You could, you could, um, uh, accomplish things in this machine, like hiking the highest Mount in the, the Mount Everest. And you could go to, you know, uh, uh, concerts and punk rock concerts and symphonies, and you could eat food and have sex and, you know, whatever, all the pleasurable things in the world. And you could just do it forever in this machine. And so then he asks though, um, number one, would you plug in? But actually he asked, should you plug in? What ought yeah. you do? But the questions I'm interested in are, would you plug in? And should you plug in? Because I think our answer to that, again, if we're just sort of guiding, if we're having a conversation with our reader, um, you know, the intuition is, well, wait a minute, would you do it? Not just yeah. should you. And I, my hunch, hunch is, and Nozick says we what we shouldn't, because we don't just want to experience reality. We want to be rightly related to reality. We, we don't just want to have, you know, experiences of beliefs. We want to actually, um, you know, um, be a certain kind of person, not just have experiences of being a certain kind of person and things like yeah. that. And I think our intuition is that he's right, that we shouldn't and that we wouldn't um, 
enter into the experience machine. And if that's the case, well, then we, we've discovered something important about reality, right? And, that, mm. and that, that, the thing that we've discovered is that pleasure isn't the only good, right? That we, we ought to be pluralist about pleasure. There's other kinds of goods. And one of them is being rightly related to reality and having, you know, um, being a certain kind of person and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I'm, 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 uh, that's so good. I'm going to clip that. So I, I needed you to broach that for me. No Zix thing. That's so good. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. I want to, I want to give counter examples, but I'm not going to, um, be, I think, I, I think I can, if we, if we keep going here. So, um, so wealth isn't happiness, success, fame, pleasure. Like some people listening might be like, yeah, it's easy for you to say like, dude, I'm not wealthy. So chill on that. Like all you have to do is get one of those things and you realize it's not uh, yeah. happiness. All you have to do is succeed at any of your goals. And we, I mean, we were Christians. We, I work with athletes. I tell, tell them this all the time. Like when you talk to an Olympic champion, if that is their God, if that is their whole goal of everything, then the loneliest day that they ever experienced, the worst day is right after they win the gold medal. And so it's like, you just listen to other people. You don't have to like experience all these pangs yourself. Um, but many of us don't do that, including myself. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Paul, if though, if that's not what happiness is and what is happiness and why not just go, you said be a pluralist about why, why not just be like, well, fine, I'll just take all of these things and maybe I'll like, you know, have the, I'll find out the perfect dial for each one to have perfect happiness. Like what, what is it if it's not that? Yeah, and Boethius has been so great on this because this is the d discussion that he's, well, Boe Lady Philosophy is having with the Boethius in this book. Um, I, I think that all these things that I considered, wealth, pleasure, fame, uh, success, are ingredients in happiness, right? I do yeah. think they are uh, ingredients in it, but I don't think it's what happiness is, right? This is the part of the book where I'm considering questions of destiny. Like, what is the thing that will actually make us happy objectively, right? Mm. And as it turns out, so there we have to discover the true story of the world, right? To understand what is what is happiness, not subjective happiness, but what actually happiness amounts to, right? Yeah. And in fact, even in Boethius, um, in the in the dialogue, Lady Philosophy says, "Look, you understand your the origin of all things. Why have you forgotten about the end, right? The destiny, the purpose of what is truly going to make you happy." And at least on one story, the the Christian story, right, the theist story, um, true happiness is our our great is a great relational good, right? Our highest good is a relation. It's union with God. That's the thing that God made us for. That's the thing that Augustine says our hearts are restless for, until they find rest in God. So. Um, I think at least, so for Boethius, he walks through all these counterfeits, uh, and then he basically says, well, what is happiness? Happiness is being united to transcendent reality, and transcendent reality is God. So happiness mm. is union with God. And I think that's actually the answer. That's what actual happiness is. Um, but you, you can fill it out, right? It's it's union with God, right? so being rightly related to God, that's the relational good, the highest good. But it's also being rightly related to self, so there's a character integrity character matters right intellectual and moral virtue it's being rightly related to the world around us and each other right so there's a kind of harmony that obtains as we're rightly related to our the different people that we interact with as well as the world around us and then finally rightly related to our end our telos our purpose the thing that god has made us for and that includes not just union with god but like the the actual work that god has called us or created us to do and there's yeah. that's a whole discussion um and then what's so interesting on the Christian story, all that other stuff um, kind of gets enfolded into God's happiness, right? Like that's what I love about C.S. Lewis and his essay, The Weight of Glory. We have this weightiness of glory because 
we get to be an ingredient in God's happiness, right? And so mm. all of these other things, pleasure, success, fame, all that, they, they, they're ingredients in objective happiness for humans. And then we roll all that up ultimately into the fact that we get to be part of what um, is God's happiness. And so that's a kind of cool way to wrap all these things up um, that I find super compelling and suggestive. Yeah, man. It's like, I mean, again, this is the Exodus Redditus that's like yeah. from God mm -hmm. and returning back yeah, to him exactly. for his glory and his good or for his yeah. uh, happiness and, and for our benefit as well. Um, I wonder, so, so giving this objective understanding of happiness, I wonder then if you could ask the question, uh, like, would, would there be someone who would be unhappy with objective happiness? Right. So if it's like, being right related, rightly related to God, but someone has an, a false idea of what would make them happy, and it doesn't include that. You know, sometimes people be like, "If if if that's what heaven is, then I don't want to go." And it's like, yeah, you pro pro probably not, right? Like, if you hate God, and in heaven we're going to be worshiping new heavens, new earth, we're going to be glorifying him forever. Like, you would probably hate that. Would it make sense to be like, um, you might not be happy with objective happiness? Um. I mean, I think that there's an equivocation in that question, which I love. It's a good question, right? Um, you might not, not be subjectively happy probably with uh, the way things are happy, you know? Um, yeah, so if happiness, I mean, that's the word that we use, right? And, and it's a good, perfectly good word. Um, but I think it's like flourishing in light of our nature. Mm. That's what yeah. happiness actually is. So if you say, would you be happy if you didn't think that ha happiness amounted to flourishing the way that you're actually made? That'd be like saying, um, I mean, you know, if, if we are creatures of a certain kind, to get back to the discussion of earlier, and we flourish, we function properly in light mm. of that kind, that nature that we are, um, it doesn't matter what we think about it. We will, in fact, not flourish, you know, if, um, if we think that, you know, if we, if we choose to live a different way. And I think that's yeah. just what, you know... Um, disflourishing is right that's just what um and so there are you know maybe we can be subjectively happy for a time right that's okay because pleasure is fun right it can be yeah. but if you read the accounts of people who have had that in spades right one of the most chilling books i read as i did research for this was by anthony kiedis the lead one of the, yeah the lead singer for the red hot chili peppers his book scar tissues i mean if you want the hedonistic life that guy yeah. did it in spades right, right. And it was a chilling story of the how it just wrecks your life, and it, he fell into addiction of drugs in his case, um, and sex, and 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 he will admit that, that that is not where happiness will be found. So look at the guides, look at the people that have the thing that we think we want. You know, look yeah. at Jim Carrey, same thing. He's got fame, and he says, "No, I've tried it. I've tried it all. It's not the thing that will make you satisfied." Satisfied. Yeah. And so that's what I would want to say is, um. I mean, we can believe all kinds of false things, but then realities, we're going to bump up to reality. And yeah. we're going to realize that's not the thing that we actually long for. That's not the yeah. thing that will make us whole. And yeah. what we really want is to discover our true name. And we won't discover that until we discover the true story of the world. Yeah, dude, that's so good. I, I'm I'm tempted to like wrap everything up in a nice bow here. Um, but I, I have one more question for you that's like... Um, when I, when I think about, when I think through like the things that people chase for happiness and, and thinking about those who have had it, like, uh, I watched, uh, I can't think of the documentary now that, that Michael Jordan one on Netflix last dance, maybe oh, last dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, Oh dude, this guy had it, it had it all. Uh, like there's no one better 
and sports maybe that's debatable but you know like they're, i'm from chicago so it's not that debatable for me um yeah. and it's like that that's not everything and it goes away like so even if that did make him perfectly happy he can't play like that anymore uh or if lebron get ends up becoming better than him you know if that's possible then like dang it and so for me um i see that but then i wonder like if perfect happiness is being right, rightly related to God, um, will I ever be rightly related to God this side of heaven? And I think, like, I, I trust Jesus. I'm, I'm, I believe the gospel. Uh, I'm still a sinner, and that relationship still gets broken down. Like, um, I don't have right relationships with others and the world around me. And sometimes I'm confused about that. Like, what's the right relation I should have to my dog? Do I treat him too much like a person, you know, mm -hmm. um, right yeah. relationship with self? I got all these yeah. weird, like, and then my tell us like, um, dude, should I be a philosopher or should I be a missionary? Like, what the heck? Mm -hmm. So what do you think, man? Like, can you experience perfect happiness this side of glory as a Christian? Good. That's a great question. Um, I mean, so so what? One of the joys of entering in, into the story, right, is is that we can locate humans in the mm -hmm. Exodus Redditus pattern, right? This yeah. is one of the wonderful things I'm teaching philosophical theology right now. We're going through Kevin Timpey's book, Free Will and Philosophical Theology, and he he gives this um, he he uh, he um, talks through the very stages of humans in light of the Exodus Redditus story, right? So in the beginning, the first couple enjoyed the state of perfect integrity or innocence, right? And then you have the fall and then it's the state of corruption and then the redemption transition. And so you have the stage of um, re re redeemed, but ultimately we're headed toward the state of glory or perfection. Yeah. So we can actually locate humans on the Exodus Redditus journey um, where we're all, all on the way, right? This is what I love about theologians and philosophers have noticed that creatures, humans are, are homo viators, creatures on the way. Yeah. Yeah. We're on a journey, a quest, a destiny toward love, towards perfect love and towards union with perfect love. Right. Mm. And so I think you, you ask like actually a great question um, that I think reveals the human predicament. Right. We yeah. long for meaningful happiness, not just subjective happiness, but meaningful happiness. And that entails that we're creatures, homo viatus, creatures on a way, on a journey. And we can really read um, the story that you inhabit based on the way that you live your life, right? If we're mm. wanderers, if uh, we, we're not inhabiting the true story, but if we're pilgrims on, a, on the way, well, we journey in faith with hope toward love, right? And one day we will be glorified. And one day we will have that perfect permanent union with God mm. that will be um, perfect happiness, right? And I don't know exactly what that looks like, right? I have all these yeah. questions about the afterlife and um, yeah. what it means to have a perfect will such that I cannot sin, but I still act freely, right? These are the great questions about what is what is the afterlife look like? Um, but I think that's part of the answer is probably not on this side, but we can we can experience genuine happiness yeah. as we journey along the way in hope by faith toward love. And that's why yeah. the virtues matter. That's why the Christian story puts us on the path that leads to ultimately, um, ultimately to God and union eternally uh and fully with the god who created us yeah man that's good i'm so glad that you had the answer that's huge um well folks that's that's gonna have to do it for us for now um we only talked a little bit about three chapters but there are 11 of them so i i highly recommend the book once again it is a good and true story 11 clues to understanding our universe and your place in it 
Paul, thanks so much for for coming on, man. Thanks for all your time. Thanks for, I mean, I can't thank you for everything you've done for me here. We don't have enough time. But uh, you're the man. Um, anything, uh, like if people wanted to hear more from you or learn more from you, like what's up? Can you Can you tell us where they can find you at? Yeah, you can find me on all the normal places on social media, Facebook. Well, not all the normal places, social media and Twitter right now. And then um, paul-gould.com has a lot of my, um, some of the books and articles and things that I've written. Um, and then, you know, come study with us. Yeah. Join us at Palm Beach Atlantic University if you really want to dig into these things. Uh, you know, um, we're having a lot of fun there. But yeah, you can find me at the usual places and or at Palm Beach Atlantic University on our website. Uh, you can find me through there. Awesome. Thanks, and Parker. I, it's good to be with you. And uh, yeah, good to come on your show and talk about this book. Appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, can can people buy it now? Is it? I'm going to release this today. Can they go and buy it mm -hmm. on Amazon right now? Yeah. So the book officially comes out on November 15th, 2022. So if you if uh, you're hearing after that, it's available. But you can pre-order, of course, and it'll awesome. arrive uh, pretty quickly since it comes out on Monday. Awesome. And awesome. we're talking on a Friday, right? So we're that's right. Yeah, that's, four days away. Yeah. Um, awesome, folks. Well, that's going to have to do it for now. Uh, if you like Paul's shirt or this shirt, um, it may not give you perfect happiness, but you, there's only one way to find out. So go and buy those shirts. Uh, it's not going to give you perfect happiness. But if you guys uh, had any thoughts, leave them in the comment. Please leave me a like and, and all that good stuff. That's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.